Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Zebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, I am Bela Seabrow, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. Thank you to Vinus for hosting our show. We are post the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, where the charming heroine Yehudas and the historic victory of the saga schemed to take on Heliphornus, and she saved the people. How apropos to today's show about a woman who was a Zionist pioneer, a spy, and patriot, a Joan of Arc type of martyr and heroine. We have with us today our Israeli correspondent who wrote a book about the dramatic life of Sarah Aronson in this historic novel and her passion to go after Israel's enemies. The book is titled A Tale of Love and Destiny and follows a beautiful young woman through a failed marriage into the turmoil of war, heroism, and espionage. The story is based in what was then called Palestine during World War I and how the dedication and courage of Sarah helped pave the way for the creation of the Jewish state. The author of this book is our show's Israeli correspondent, Barry Shaw, from Israel International Public Diplomacy Director at the Israel Institute for Strategic Studies. Barry regularly contributes to various media outlets, including the Jerusalem Post, and is a frequent speaker at conferences and pro-Israel advocacy events. Barry Shaw has been a staunch defender of Israel in the public diplomacy arena for decades and has initiated the creation of several pro-Israel grassroots groups. As always, Barry gives a full account of details not heard anywhere else because mainstream media does not necessarily cover everything, and Barry always fascinates our viewers and listeners. Barry, as always, welcome to the Definitive Wrap. Nice to see you again, Bila. Barry, what motivated you to write the story about Sarah Aronson? I mean, though the facts are true, this is a novel. Can you give us the the behind-the-scenes background of this novel from your perspective? As you you know, that I I write several books, and uh, I'm a student of history. And um, history, as it it, uh, applies to the the Jewish people, and certainly Israel, Zionism and everything, uh, and and really, I got into this message, this part, when I was studying for the other book, 1917, from Palestine to the State of Israel, um, and uh, I went through the history, and this brought me into uh, back home. I thought I was going to write about uh, people abroad, and quite frankly, it's to do with like the British and the Anzacs and fighting the Palestine campaign, which was part of World War One. But as part of the study, I really got into um, the characters of one called uh, Aaron Aronson and his younger sister, Sarah Aronson. And um, this is, I felt this, these are stories that not many people know about. Right. And I, uh, I, I was actually going to gonna... tell you, I'm an avid reader. And I never heard about this. Well, I was I was going to follow up 1917 with, first of all, the story of Aaron Aronson, because Aaron Aronson was the Jewish equivalent of Lawrence of Arabia, and his story is also amazing. 
but I decided to go another road, and I decided to uh, start off by actually writing about his uh, sister, younger sister. Why did I do that? Because I personally was struck by what this woman went through. I have to tell you that here in Israel, um, she is a, an Israeli folk heroine. Uh, kids learn about her in school, for instance. Now, I know that when people are reading the book, it reads like a novel. In fact, I changed my style of writing in order to, to have it read like a, a, a novel. And right. um, I wanted to pull out, as much as I could do as a guy, what this woman would have felt being in the situation she was in which we'll get to, you know, later in the program. But why specifically her? Why specifically this this story? Like well, what, what, what motivated me, you to go that that route? Well, a, what happened to her was uh, I was struck by her upbringing, which was she was ahead of her time. And she struck me as being a role model, even for women or girls of today, despite the fact that she lived over a century ago. But over a century ago, she was a very, for her time, very advanced and very independent sort of woman. And uh, she lived in a, in, a, uh, a, in a closed society, if you want to call it that, in a place in Israel that people have been there now called Zichron Yaakov, now the modern Zichron Yaakov. But at that time, it was just starting up as a sort of a pioneer uh, collective, agricultural collective of mainly from refugees from, from Romania that was set up by Baron de Rothschild in, on the Carmel Mountains, where it was basically agriculture. So when these people were huddled together under the protection of the French baron to, to start an agricultural thing, I found that the Aronson family were sort of aloof from what was going on. And it was really headed by um, Aaron Aronson, was a, also a remarkable guy, even as a young, um, early teenager, he was very studious. Um, and he spent most of his time in the library that they had in uh, Zikron Yaakov. Uh, and because of his education, he was allowed or given a grant by uh, Baron de Rothschild to go to France to, to advance his education. Um, and his education was at uh, some agricultural school in France. And he got into agriculture, agronomy, uh, water, things like this. And he made various contacts. He came back uh, to, at that time, Palestine. It wasn't Israel. It was still right. under the Ottoman right. Turks. Right. Um, and he, he, he got involved in agronomy in, in this is the, the science of agriculture. Um, and because he'd made contact while he was in France with the agronomists and later on in Germany and other places, he discovered that uh, what people were looking for, what they were looking for in, in, in Germany, and also in, in America, was a, a hardy type of wheat. And I, although this starts, starts, starts to be boring, but it's fascinating story uh, because they wanted to mass produce uh, wheat, wheat to make for bread making uh, on a larger industrial scale, if you want to call it that, both in Europe and in the United States. And he reckoned that uh, knowing his Bible, not from really from a religious point of view, but really from his point in agriculture, agronomy, that they were civilizations 
in the Holy Land two, three thousand years ago, where people lived off the land and they must have been wheat at that time. So he went looking around Palestine. He would go on horseback with a couple of donkeys and go out looking for samples on everything. And and one of his um, uh, missions, he went out. I don't know if you know it, in the north of Israel is Mount Hermon which has snow at the top in the winter, but at the time down below, it's usually a warm climate. And there on the hills of Mount Hermon, he found these strands, these emmers, these uh, uh, strands of, of wheat, wild wheat. And he took them as samples and they've been there. They'd not been farmed at all. It was just wild wheat. Right. And they'd been there for like two, 3,000 years. And he brought it back, he examined them, and he sent them off to Germany and also to America and said, is this the wheat you're looking for? And they said, wow, this is exactly what we're looking for. And he finds them here in Palestine. Now, this gave him celebrity because he was invited to go to France to give a talk, and he went over to America. And he was a very charismatic young guy at this time, very charismatic, spoke several languages. If you go into his house in Zikron Yaakov, as you can, and you look into the study, you can see the books he had in various languages. You know, when he was in his early 20s, he was speaking five, six languages fairly fluently. Uh, and he was, he came across some of the leading influential people in the United States at that time. And one of the things that he that happened was that he, a bit of a salesman, he got a group of them together to become trustees of what he called the Jewish, uh, agric the Jewish Agricultural Experimentation Station, which he oh. built in Atlid. And his younger sister, uh, Sarah Aronson, who was also very keen, she went out with him on certain hunting missions and she came back herself and she came back with plants. Don't remember, remember we're talking here of about the 1914, 15, earlier right. perhaps of that, where Sarah was still a, a younger teenage girl or whatever. And she was bringing back plants and flowers and she was looking through... Um, we, the Hebrew dictionary at that time to find a name and found these plants didn't have any names. So there's this young Sarah Aronson writing letters to Ben Yehuda, who was the man who wrote the original Hebrew dictionary and said, you know, I have plants, I can give you their Latin name. And, I and she was how old at that time? Hebrew how name. old was she at that time? She was about 16, 17, about that sort of age, maybe even a little younger when she started. And she had this relationship uh, correspondence with Ben Yehuda, who took her recommendations for plants and small insects and things like this and gave them their Hebrew name. So it shows what sort of girl she was. Yeah. And when she wasn't doing that and working with her brother and doing all this adventurous stuff with her brother as well, she liked buying Paris uh, fashion magazines and making ladies dresses like this. So uh, she was really out of the mold at the time of, a, of normally a, a young woman who would be helping in the agriculture thing. She was, but she was doing on the development thing. And she absolutely adored her older brother, who was very charismatic, very influential. But then we came into more difficult times. Uh, don't forget, we're talking about it here when um, Palestine was just a basically bare, empty place, more or less, of, yeah. the, of the Ottoman Empire. 
and the Ottoman Turks ruled it from, say, um, Damascus. And it was a question of uh, people paying their taxes to the Ottoman Turks, not making any trouble, blackmailing people to get passage for travel and things like this. But then we come into a time where the First World War began. Uh, but privately, another example of what you was doing is that um, um, in the book, as I described, her brother invited all the, the managers because they opened various uh, departments of this agriculturalist uh, around uh, Palestine at the time. And they invited people to the home, the managers of the various uh, places, usually young men, uh, young Jewish men or occasional women here and there. And Aaron invited them to a, a dinner at his home and um, uh, told them that he had received a, a new contribution from the trustees and they could open up more department, more branches around Palestine. Right. So they're going to get busier than ever. And at the same time, her, brother, her other brother, older brother Alexander, said they wanted to create a team of um, riders because what was happening, some of the local Arabs were stealing some of the, 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 the products or some of the animals that they had or, or some of the shepherds were, were taking the goats and sheep across the land during the day and in the evening ruining their crops. So they wanted to have a sort of outriders that would be armed, that would go on night patrols to shoo away anybody coming to steal things or to move things off the crops and everything. And sure enough, Sarah Arison turns up on horseback in order to, armed, in order to join in and said, no, we can't have women on this. But she insisted on being there. So that's the sort of person she was. Now, she. Oh, this is where, one of the parts that may fascinate you, Bila, because she had a romance going with a very attractive young man who was one of the managers, who was a bit of a um, Errol Flynn sort of character, and uh, she had a bit of an affair going with him. Incidentally, in the book, there are one or two in intimate moments, let's say, woven into the book. And some women said, well, why are you talking about these sort of intimate moments? But I, I want to tell you, everything in this book is true. It reads like a novel, and including some of the intimacies. Now... You have to realize the intimacies. Now, I'll come into this a little bit later on because I want to speed up a little bit on the story. What happened was she was having a, a, a relationship and she was in love or the, with a guy who was more in love with her, I guess, than she was. And she, he asked, he proposed to her. But it was coming to a stage where her brother was getting involved with some very serious stuff with the uh, with the um, uh, Ottoman leaders at the time uh, and needed her help. And she was uh, really busy with it. And she said, Look, I don't have time for marriage at uh, this time, but, you know, thank you very much or whatever. Uh, and later on, she found out that um, because he she had rejected him for marriage, he had uh, gotten himself involved with a younger sister, Rivka, and actually proposed. And he found, uh, or her sister showed her, the, a poem that he'd written. And the poem was called A Thousand Kisses. Hmm. And this has been made, was made into a very famous song here in Israel, sung by Yom Go'on, uh, and it became a hit over here. And the words were taken from her 
former lover, and she was so upset with it that uh, she was so under pressure because at the time there were still sort of customs, the way you do things in Jewish families, that the younger sister really couldn't marry until the older sister married. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that somebody had come over to Zichron Yaakov, a businessman, a Jewish businessman, a German Jewish businessman who lived in Constantinople looking for business opportunities with the winery they had there. And he'd heard about the Aronson family and wanted to meet Aaron Aronson, Uh who was well known in Germany as well. Uh, and had uh, met Sarah there, who hadn't thought much about it, and had asked her father, Ephraim, if Sarah was taken for or engaged or whatever, and said no, and said, well, if she's ever interested in marrying, I could be very interested in whatever. This is the time. And because she was sort of on the rebound, and she felt she was also stopping Rivka from advancing in her life, she went to her father and said, okay, I'm prepared to marry him. Despite the fact that we're so tied up with the brother's business, I think, I can ask you as a woman, I think part of that, she had a bit of a broken heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she decided to, to get married. They had a ceremony at the house, a private wedding ceremony, and she went off with uh, Haim Abraham uh, to his home in another land in uh, in Constantinople at uh, that time, which was now today Istanbul. And there she and found What herself. was his name? What was his name? This, uh... His name is Haim Abraham. Haim Abraham. Okay. He, was, he was doing business between Berlin and and Turkey. And um, but she, he was a he was a bit of a Teutonic um, in the sense that uh, he wanted her to keep the books and if she spent money, she had to write it in the records or whatever. And um, But she was a free will girl, she, she independent world. She was riding on horseback between Atlid and uh, Zichron Yaakov, you know, and things like this. And she discovered that um, because she was left on her own quite often, he went away on business for, to yeah. Berlin and, and then away for some days and coming back or he'd be all busy all day at meetings. And she would go out and explore Constantinople and go to watch the streets and white life going by and go to the port and watch the ships coming in and the fishermen and things like this. And he found out about it and he went absolutely livid and said, no wife of a respectable businessman goes wandering around the streets of Brutally, a woman like that on her own, on chaperone, there's no such thing. This is the formalities of the time. And um, she felt herself more of a prisoner, more closed into this in, in sort of a loveless marriage. She managed to go out uh, by carriage to meet some of the, other, the women she had met, who right. a number of those were also Palestinian Jewish women who had been deported from Palestine, either been deported because of their Zionist activities here, and they'd been deported to Constantinople to keep them out of trouble, or they were either the wives of the doctors who were at the hospital serving there or whatever. Uh, and of those, there was a couple of uh, people who had been deported, uh, husband and wife, especially the woman who was also a bit of an independent woman like she was. And um, she had a... Um, a, a lawyer 
coming a Jewish lawyer coming from Palestine to plead with the court in Constantinople to allow this couple to come back with him to uh, Palestine at the time. <clears throat> and his mission was unsuccessful. The Turkish court wouldn't allow them to come back. But then she's asked if this, this uh, lawyer would be her escort to return back home uh, to Palestine. Why? Because at the same time she was finding herself in a loveless marriage, she was getting less and less correspondence from her family because a war had broken back. And she would see the war was broken out because she was watching from her window troops passing by to go to the port, to be going off to some war front somewhere. Um, and, and so she, part of the chapter in the book is her going to the various registry offices in order to get the travel documents, where it was very unusual for a woman, never mind a very attractive woman, to go unescorted in order to get these sort of documents. And it required a, a, a bit of a lot of charm, quite a bit of uh, a bakshish, which is like the blackmail and payment money under the table to the manager to prepare the documents. And she waited and she got the courier to wait until her husband went away on a trip to Berlin. And she left him a letter saying that being so concerned about the family, she was leaving to go back. Now, this is where it starts getting more serious. Because I described some of the buildings and everything, that uh, the architecture that I described, this is why it makes a great movie of right. this thing. Uh, and its descriptions are in the book. But during her journey home, it started off by train, but it got to be pretty tortuous uh, because the, the best transportation was by ship, but they really weren't, because a war was on, there weren't too many ships going between Constantinople and Haifa or Jaffa, for instance. So they had to go by chain, but it wasn't a straight train line all the way. And on the way, she saw a lot of the construction of the new train line being funded by the Germans for the Turks. And she noticed slave labor, and the slave labor was being done by the Armenian men. It was at the time she realized and she discovered that in fact the Turks were carrying out a genocide against the Armenian Christians. And wow. she, actually during her travels, was coming She witnessed the, that. She witnessed that. But also because of the troop movements that were taking the trains, and had to go to a station somewhere and then have to wait a day or so because the, the, the train line was given preference to the troop movements. She had to spend overnight with this, for instance, the courier and get a couple of rooms in a local hotel while she had, they had to wait for the train. And she went to another uh, station where she saw the train coming in and as she was looking through the fields, she stole what she thought were skeletons, and it was mainly old men, women, and children who were left in the fields in um, like the autumn and, and, and cold time to simply to die there of infection or disease or hunger. Right. Uh, and, it's, and she described as part of it as they were coming into the station, 
the train driver had run over some of the people who were so weak and everything, they couldn't get off the train line. I mean, these are mm. some of the horrors that she witnessed. And she arrived in the town of Konya and she had to wait for till the, the, later the next day. And the uh, she spoke to the hotel manager. They, they talked about the hotel manager, what was going on on there. And he was very disparaging about the Armenians and whatever. And she said also there was a hospital that was an American hospital where they had children there. It was like an mm. orphanage. So they went off to visit it. And I described about her meeting with uh, Emma Cushman and the Professor Haikarian, for instance, who was an Armer Armenian doctor there. And she, it was a, an orphanage now, as a hospital converted into an orphanage with hundreds or 200 Armenian kids whose parents had been killed or had been taken away and left the children on their own. Uh, and the reason that this Armenian was not being persecuted by the Turks was because this uh, was an American hospital. It was funded by the Americans. And it was uh, also the uh, US ambassador to Turkey was a, a Jewish guy called Morgenthau. And uh, the Armenia, the, the Turks wouldn't touch it because they didn't want the wrath of the Americans coming in and joining in the war. Uh, so these people for a long time felt, but she witnessed all this. And when she got back, she met her brother again and told her, uh, told him about the Armenian genocide. She'd actually witnessed it. But her brother had no other information. The reason that they hadn't been in contact with her was a couple of things. First of all, they'd had a locust plague where, because he had this agricultural development thing, Jamal Pasha, who was like the dictator for the Ottoman Empire, which included uh, Palestine, who hated the Jews, but allowed Aaron Aronson and his people to do it because they needed their crops. Certainly now, because of supplying the troops, for instance, with, with extra uh, food. And, and at that time, Palestine was growing in the number of not only Turkish, but German troops in Palestine uh, um, in order to pre pre prepare themselves to possibly fight the British in, in, in Egypt, because at that time, Egypt was a British protectorate. Um, but coming to the chase, <clears throat> Aaron told her that he had sent away a Rivka, the younger sister, and Alexander a, to America because he was worried that Alexander was going to be conscripted into the Turkish army, and he wanted to have Rivka safe as well. A, and but that he had created a an espionage ring, a spy ring, with a lot of the young men that he had at his uh, disposal who had volunteered to help him on this, to in order to bring military intelligence with a view of giving it to the British. But they had tried to give it, send it to the British, but the British weren't responding all that well, and so. He said he wanted to go to Egypt personally to really make a breakthrough with the British general staff over there. And he wanted Sarah to take over control of his espionage network that was yeah. taking apart. And she felt this is the mission that my life was leading me and to. She felt this was her calling. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. And at that time, it's it's fascinating. So uh, she also found out that her, um, her former lover, 
had uh, head off, headed off with another guy called Joseph by on horseback to try and make their way down through the Sinai to the British. Uh, but he had, they had disappeared. They didn't know where he was. So he had gone down there. He'd gone missing. This is another reason that Aaron Aronson wanted to go down, but he would do it another way. He was going to do it through, he was going to get permission from Jamal Pasha to go to, as if he was going to go to Germany in order to do some agricultural research work to get a pass that way, and then make his way down through uh, some other circuitous way to get to the British general staff in Egypt. And this is why this Aaron Aronson is, to me, both a James Bond and an M. You know, M was a, the controller back there because he was really was a charismatic character. Uh, and he devised a route. He went to see Jamal Pasha to get the travel passes. But he had decided in his mind that if he went over to the British and Jamal Pasha found out about it, they would probably execute everybody back there. So he had to make an excuse. So what he did, make a long story short, he went via Germany and then he went to Copenhagen to, uh, and he visited the uh, British ambassador there in Copenhagen and said, I'm a spy master. And he showed him very important military documents that he took with him. And he said, I want, I want to get on a boat reading Copenhagen that comes into, he's done the background, mm -hmm. that comes into Kirkwall, Scotland as the last stop before it headed to America. It was a passenger ship. And he said, I want you to get the British intelligence to publicly arrest me in Kirkwall, Scotland, as a Turkish spy. Yeah. Right? And somehow the, the British went for this. So as the boat turned, comes into, um, he made himself very, very publicly known and chatted up some of the women and everything. So when the, the boat turned, uh, came to Kirkwall and some of the people went off for a few hours before getting back on again, the British were waiting for it, the military police, who said, are you Aaron Aronson? We're arresting you for being a Turkish spy. And they took him away and they brought him back to Scotland Yard in London, where he met one of the major British spy masters. And he arrived with all the documents and he showed the spy master all this intelligence. And he said, this is the information I'm trying to get to you British, because we're giving you all the military intelligence you need in Palestine what the Germans are doing, what the Turkish troops are doing, where the planes are, where the bridges are, everything, where the troop movements, wherever they are. And he was then flown down to Cairo with a, a nom de plume, but didn't go down as Aaron Aronson. He went down as William Mack. Mm -hmm. And there was a newspaper report that Aaron Aronson had been arrested as a Turkish spy, and he's in Britain, in in. Britain somewhere. Uh, and that was for the, the benefit of Jamal Pasha. Oh, this guy's gone, right? Uh, but all the time he was down there in it, with the British general staff. And at first they didn't want to take the information, but what he arranged was that there would be a Navy frigate that would sail from Alexandria off the coast of Athlete, where his station was, and they would row ashore and give the instructions 
to whoever was there, whether it was Sarah or some of the other people there, and they would get the information, the military information, to send back to the British. And I'll give you some idea of some of the information they were gathering. I didn't know at the time that they were, in the First World War, they were German submarines. But Sarah Aronson had put somebody up in Beirut who had reported the movement of German submarines along the Mediterranean coast, coast from there, for instance. Right. Sarah Aronson was going out and recruiting people to be her spies, for instance, on the train ride uh, station between Afula, for instance, which was full of German uh, and Turkish troop movements. She recruited, for instance, a doctor who she'd known from the family from earlier on <clears throat> and said, I want you to give us military information. Who are the troops? What formations they are? Have you see anything being carried, whether it's uh, uh, tanks or whatever? Uh, bring me the information. And he said, why should I do that? I I could lose my head. And there you have this beautiful woman, Sarah Aronson, look at me. I'm a woman. My head is still on my shoulder. And if I'm prepared to do this for my people to make sure the Turks are defeated, you shouldn't be less of a person than I am. So he shamed her into doing it. And he turned out to be a very good spy because he went from being a doctor in a fuller where the people were getting sick of German officers Turkish officers and talking to them about who they were, where they're going and things like this. And then he got moved to also to a German airplane, Air Force base as well. And he sent information from there. He had another cousin who, who she gave a job, <coughs> sorry, at a uh, train station somewhere else. And he, for instance, also had a cafe there. And his wife was serving there. And he also gave information to her from the Turks she was talking to. Her. So they were giving all the... She also had people in a radio station. People were being conscripted. Also, yeah. some Jews who were living there were conscripted in, for instance, the Turkish radio station, Beersheba, Rishon Zion. And they were giving information to her managers who were giving that. And this was part of the essential information that the British and the reluctant British were were being handed to help them with this. What turned the tide was that when the Britain had lost two battles in Gaza, I don't know if you know this, but the British had a battle there against the Turks in Gaza and lost twice. Uh, and, and, and they changed the general from, to general from General Murray to General Allenby. Now, General Allenby comes to Cairo with an instruction from the prime minister to open a Palestine campaign, military campaign, and take Jerusalem by Christmas. And this is like April, May. So he meets his generals. This is an interesting story. He meets his generals, his general staff, all these snooty British officers, high-class officers, and they were talking to him about what the lessons they'd learned about Gaza and how to fight the third battle of Gaza. And then he met one of the people in the intelligence uh, uh, apparatus there of the general staff, British uh, uh, intelligence, Aaron Aronson, a Palestinian Jew, who would normally would dismiss. And in a meeting, Aronson, with his Jewish chutzpah, said, I understand the generals are telling you to open the battle of Gaza. Don't do it. 
go to Beersheba. And Allenby says, why should I go to Beersheba against my generals? And Aronson says, because that's where the water is. He said, you can't run a campaign, he said to this general, with 10,000 horses, 11,000 camels, 100,000 men, motor vehicles without water. And I know where the water is. And Allenby got into another conversation with him. And Allenby was a student of the Bible, not from a religious sense, because he was a military tactician, and he studied the battles of the Bible, and he got in a conversation with this Palestinian Jew about why Richard the Lionheart didn't make it to Jerusalem. Why Saladin beat him because his forces couldn't get to Jerusalem. And Allenby told him because he took the wrong route. He said he came in at a time where you will be fighting General Allenby in October and November on the coastal plain where there are malarial swamps because of the mosquitoes. And he didn't get to Jerusalem because his soldiers had become so fevered or died or sick that they didn't have the strength to make it up to Jerusalem. But I know where these swamps are. In fact, I've been bringing in trees from Australia in order to drain the eucalyptus yeah. trees, to drain some of the one, but it's still there. And you have to know where to go to and where to avoid, and I can help you. And after the war, Allenby actually said that he wouldn't have made it to Jerusalem without the help of Aronson and his sister and the Lily Spiring. It, it was that crucial intelligence. But while this is going on, there is problems back home. And Sarah, who is heading this organization, single-handedly and growing it, is getting kicked back. Not only are the Turks getting suspicious, but also the Jewish organizations are giving her hell. She's alone. She's on her own. She's got all these men devoted to her who are working for her, even putting their lives on the risk, on the line. But she was also getting it. She was getting it from the head of the Zionist organizations like uh, uh, Mayor uh, Dizengoff in Tel Aviv, that organization. She, she was getting it from the Zikron Yaakov council elders who knew she was doing something, probably spying. They didn't know what. They knew she was getting money both from the British and also from uh, the American donors to do whatever she's doing. But they were threatening her and said, what you're doing is probably putting our lives in danger. We want you to, we don't know what you're doing. We want to find out what you're doing. You want to tell us what you're doing or stop doing it and certainly stop doing it because you're putting us in danger. But she felt it was something she had to do. She didn't want to admit to them what she was doing, but she was doing it because unless the British defeated the Palestinian, the the the, uh, the Turks and the Germans, there was no way that you're going to create the new land of Israel. Yeah, they had to be beaten, and she couldn't tell the people what she was doing. <clears throat> now, Barry... I want you as a woman to consider what pressure she was under. Yeah, can you We're... imagine it? We want our readers to read to our viewers and our listeners and readers of this book. 
that will purchase, who was definitely they're going to go out and purchase this um, but, to 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 see to read for themselves and 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 feel the intrigue. I have but, to tell you that um, before I read your book, I was wondering why would Barry Shaw write a novel. I read your book, and I was fascinated by the information you expose about Israel that some readers may otherwise not even be aware of. And that is what you do. You expose what the mainstream media hides or pretends does not exist. Barry, how can people get a hold of this book? How can they get a hold of A Tale of Love and Destiny? Uh, well, you can get the book on uh, Amazon or from Book Depository, uh, either in Kindle or paperback. Uh, the reason I wrote the book this way, because... Um, I found that I had to get into the heart and soul of this Sarah Arison, not just do it as a, a sort of documentary. I thought I wanted people to share the emotions of what this woman must have been going through, because uh, she was basically alone in charge of a of an espionage organization very loyal to the people who were loyal to her as well. But some of the emotions and the stresses she was under. I, I had a woman that said, you know, maybe the, the book would have been better without some of the intimate uh, details. But I'll, two things I want to say here. First of all, there are one or two in, intimate details, ladies in the book. And I make no apologies because uh, in the background of the work that I did is I did a lot of the research of the people who are looking at documents and, and things like this. And the witnesses and people at the time said uh, there was intimacy going on between her and some other people. Um, I'm not going to get into the details here because it's, it's in the book. So what I, what I put in the book, I put in because it actually took place, not because of sensationalism. But as to writing it, it was a good question, Beaver. I'll tell you why. Because when I decided to tackle her before I tackle Aaron Aronson, I had to get into, like I said earlier, into the mood of, of, of the feminine side of things. And I'll admit to you, as long as you don't let your viewers know about it, that what I decided to do was to write down, got my pen and paper, and I started to visualize it in my mind. Yeah. With Gal as a as a TV series or a movie with Gal Gadot playing Sarah Aronson, so I got myself in this mood and I thought, what would Gal Gadot or Sarah Aronson be feeling and doing? And, uh, and this sort and of we're thing. not going to talk so, about the ending because we don't want to give it all away. We're not going to. I'm not going to go to the end, but it's <laughs> it's um it's a shocking ending. It's a very shocking ending, and uh, um, this is where we want the readers of this book to be uh, completely like, an, oh, my God, you know, this is what happened. And um, but, you're but, amazing, Barry. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. And I urge everyone to read this book. You will not be able to put it down once you start reading it. I Thank tell you to Vinus and to I our audience for tuning in. I, I want to I say one to two things. I don't know if you know any of your viewers or audiences have any experience in screenwriting. Uh, but work has begun to, in order to attempt to make the book into a Netflix series. And I've been asked to write a treatment, which uh, is a sort of things that the people want to look at who are professional uh, film executives or whatever. 
Uh, but I'm not a screenwriter, and so I don't know if any of your audience know or is a professional screenwriter, so I'd be happy for them to be in contact with me because this is a sort of a, a world that I'm not familiar with and I'm happy to coll collaborate because I want to tell you, Bila, I think this will make a most exceptional Absolutely. TV series. Absolutely. And it's an amazing role for any lead actress. Thank you again, Barry. Thanks, Gila, for having me. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap. Definitive Wrap.